Father, we show up tonight, um, many of us with distracted hearts, thinking about the exams that we have to finish, uh, the plans that we have over spring break. Good things, God, important things. And yet we want to recognize here in this moment that there's something that we need uh, more than attending to those things, more than thinking about them or accomplishing them. We need your presence with us. And we thank you that you promise to be with us when you speak to us in your word. So would you give us your Holy Spirit now so that we would have ears to hear. And as we attend to you and your voice in your word, would you attend to us and make it so that none of us leave here unchanged, no matter where we're at in our walk with you. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I want you all to imagine for a moment that you owe a huge debt that you could never afford. Some of you are laughing because you're in college and you're preparing after you graduate, hypothetically, some of you, to pay off what might seem like a huge debt that you could never afford. But I'm not actually talking about your college loans. I want you to think of a scenario in which you are actually so indebted to someone or something that not only are you kept from like being able to go on the vacations that you would like to go on, but you actually don't know where your next meal is coming from, or you don't know whether you're going to be able to afford rent this month. Maybe some of you have been in a position like this before. But I want you to imagine now that a family member comes along and they offer to pay off all of this debt for you. And in their offer, you can tell there aren't strings attached. They're not trying to manipulate you. They're not trying to get something for you. They just want to show you this generosity and, and completely pay off this debt so that you can be free and rescued from this insecurity. Now, I want you to imagine that after that family member comes in and they pay this debt that you could never afford, that you run after them and you start like pulling loose change out of your pockets and offering it to them. And then after they leave, you start going around telling people uh, that you, you joined with them. You were kind of partners in paying off this debt. How would your family member who paid off this debt so generously, no strings attached, how do you think they would feel if you did that sort of thing? If you ran after them offering chump change and then starting to claim uh, a partnership in paying off that debt. The truth of the human condition is that each and every one of us shows up spiritually bankrupt, that we owe a debt that we could never afford. And in fact, every day that we live, we only increase that debt. But for those of us that know Jesus, we know someone who's come to pay that debt to pay it completely, not as a power play or to manipulate us, but out of love. I believe that the default mode of religion for human beings, the default way that we relate to God is a little bit like this example that I'm sharing with you of someone who has this incredible debt paid off and then they, they run after their family member and try to offer them their chump change. There's an author, Chris Watkin, who describes this default mode of human religion of relating to God 
as N-shaped religions. So picture like a lowercase n. What do we do when we come to God? We think that we need to achieve something on our own. We need to offer something to God to ascend up to him and then to bring his blessings back down to us, uh, to partner with him in, in the work that is uh, improving ourselves or making our way to heaven or fill in the blank. But what 2 Samuel 7 shows us, uh, clear as day, and what the Bible makes clear time and again, is that the religion of the Bible, the relationship that we can have with the living God, is not N-shaped. It's not us ascending up to him, but Chris Watkin describes it as being U-shaped, right? So God comes down to us, he meets us in our need, and then he brings us up with him afterwards. The main purpose I have for us this evening is to call all of us away from this default mode that we all struggle with, relating to God as if we need to achieve something to get his blessings, and to call us to trusting in the God of incredible grace. And in an effort to do that, we're going to do three things with this passage, 2 Samuel 7. We're going to look at the context, the content, and the consequence which, by the way, is a, a pretty good way for you to study the Bible on your own. You're thinking about what God's word means for you. Think about the context, the content, what it says in and of itself, and then the consequence for your lives. So first, let's think about the context. Right before God made these big promises to David in 2 Samuel 7, there was another important historical event that took place. King David had defeated the Philistines yet again. Remember, he conquered the giant Goliath, as we looked at a previous large group this semester. He defeated the Philistines. Well, yet again, he's come and he's defeated the Philistines. He's fought on behalf of God's people. But this time, after he defeated them, he rescued what is often called the Ark of the Covenant in the Bible. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, maybe you've seen it displayed in an Indiana Jones movie, but it's not something that we're very familiar with in our day and age. It was literally a holy box. But in the Old Testament, this holy box, the Ark of the Covenant, it's called the Ark of God in verse 2. It represented God's special presence with his people. Now, God is the God of heaven and earth. He fills all things. He can't be contained by the whole universe. And yet he chose for this time period to display his presence in a special way wherever the Ark of the Covenant was. And one day this holy box would go into the Holy of Holies in the temple. And it would function like the footstool of God's heavenly throne on the earth. So that's the Ark that David is talking about in verse 2 which helps us to understand the dilemma that he's in on the front end of our passage. Here is David, the earthly king, the servant king, the one who ultimately is just supposed to be pointing God's people to the high king, the king of heaven and earth, to the Lord himself. Here's David living in a house of cedar, a permanent home, a palace. And here's God dis displayed, manifested his presence, represented in the Ark of the Covenant. He's living in a tent, what the Bible often calls the tabernacle, a, a sort of portable temple. So you see there, there's something wrong here, and David is picking up on this. We're going to return to that in just a moment. 
But for us to understand the impact of this passage, we don't just need to have this immediate historical context and view of what's going on with the Ark of the Covenant coming into Jerusalem. We also need to have what I like to think of as, as a cosmic context and view. Not just what is happening at this point in Israel's history, although that's important, but what is God doing throughout history, spanning the ages. In Genesis 1 and 2, the Bible tells us that God in the beginning made everything good and very good. And when he made everything, he planted a garden called Eden. And into that garden, he put his children, uh, the first human beings, our first parents, Adam and Eve. And if you pay careful attention to the way that the Garden of Eden is described in Genesis 1 and 2, it actually sounds a lot like a temple. It's a place where God would come to dwell with his people in a special way. And into that garden temple, God put priests, Adam and Eve, to worship him and offer up their lives as living sacrifices to him. And one of the things that God commanded Adam and Eve to do was to go and to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth and to subdue it. In other words, to spread the presence of God's temple over the face of the earth. But I think many of you know what comes next in the story. Adam and Eve sinned against God. And what was the result? They were cast out of God's presence. They were separated from him. They were removed from the original temple, removed from the Garden of Eden. When we understand the immediate and the cosmic context of this passage, it helps us to see what's going on here. Because for the rest of human history, after that first fall, that first rebellion against God, God would be paving the way for when his children could come again into his presence. That they could come and live with him and be in the wonderful place that he had prepared for them. That puts David's desire here that we're going to talk more about in just a moment into context. One author put it this way. David's desire to build a temple seems to point to his desire to establish a place where God will cause his name to dwell. David has set himself to the task of Adam of expanding the borders of the new Eden. So that brings us to the content of this passage. That's helpful background for us to understand what's going on here. Uh, what is this passage actually telling us? Well, at the beginning of the story, we see David has this, this desire to build a house for the Lord. And that's not that surprising given the situation that we described. What's also not that surprising is the knee-jerk reaction of the prophet Nathan. The prophet Nathan hears this desire from David to honor God in this way by building him a house. And he says, yeah, David, go for it. That sounds awesome. Where the surprise comes in is actually in God's response to David's desire. Look at what God says in verses 4 through 7. Basically, he says, if I needed a house to live in, I would have asked someone to build me a house. The truth of the matter, even though David's desire might have been motivated by a concern for God's honor, God didn't need David to do something for him. 
But the really good news of this passage is that God doesn't stop at rebuking David by, by showing to him, listen, David, I don't, I don't need anything from you. From there, God, God goes on not to do something for David, but to promise everything to David. In verses 8 through 11, we see this litany, this long list of promises about what God has determined to do for David. And at the heart of it is an ironic twist on David's desire. David came to God and said, I want to build you a house. But what does God say to David in verse 11? Look at it. God says to David, I will make you a house. There's a play on words going on here. The Hebrew word bayat oh, it means house, in verse 2 refers to the temple. But here and, and other places throughout the Old Testament, it can also refer to a dynasty. So in other places of the Bible, we see the house of David being talked about. It's not being, talking about a physical building, but the line of kings that started with him. So at the core of all these promises that God is making to David is that you wanted to make me a house, David, but no, I'm going to make you a house. I'm going to establish your line and your kingdom forever to accomplish my purposes. But I want us to think for just a couple of minutes about these other lists of promises that come with that core promise, because I think they strike at really core longings that every human heart experiences. In verse 10, God promises a place for his people. In verse 11, he promises rest from their enemies. In verse 13, he promises that although David won't be permitted to build the temple, that his son Solomon would be given the honor of doing just that. In verse 14, he promises that David's son will be treated like God's own child. And all of this, according to verse 15, is based on God's steadfast love. Now, that's a word that talks about God's loyal, covenant, promised love for his people. Now, as I've already alluded, many of these promises find a short-term fulfillment in the person of Solomon, who would be the king after David, one of David's sons. But as we've been seeing throughout the semester, all of God's promises, as Paul writes in the New Testament, find their yes in Jesus. And every single one of these promises that God makes to David in 2 Samuel 7 finds their ultimate fulfillment not in Solomon, but generations later in the coming of another son of David, in the coming of Jesus Christ. Think about it for a moment. When Jesus told his disciples shortly before his death and then resurrection and ascension, that he was going away from them. He said, I'm going away to do what? To prepare a place for you. Like verse 10 says, one day Jesus will bring heaven to earth and fulfill God's promise to David. Solomon brought temporary peace, just as God promised. His reign was a reign of flourishing and prosperity for the nation of Israel, but it didn't last forever. Uh, it was actually pretty short-lived, but Jesus comes to bring a peace that will never end. Solomon, David's son, sat on his father's throne, but then he died. Uh, Jesus, the promised son of David, who's risen from the dead, 
is sitting on the throne over God's people forever and ever. Solomon would build a temple and it was impressive. It was glorious, but it would be destroyed. And then it would be rebuilt and then it would be destroyed again. But Jesus came as the temple of God, the fullness of God's presence. And he came also to make us into God's temple, to give us the Holy Spirit. Every facet, every aspect of this passage is pointing us to Jesus. Way back in our first large group of the semester, we saw how the Israelite kingship started. And it didn't start in an especially pretty way or a glorious way. It started when God's people decided that they didn't want God to be their king anymore. Uh, But they wanted a human king like the nations surrounding them. And it brought a lot of pain and trouble into the lives of God's people. So what is God doing in this covenant with David and these promises? He is undoing the havoc that Israel's rebellion caused. They wanted a human king to replace God, and God in his kindness didn't crush them on the spot, but he gave them a human king. But in these promises that God is making to David that would one day be fulfilled in Jesus, God is reestablishing himself as the sole ruler and king over his people. It's showing us that God does not tolerate any rivals in our lives. But, but here's good news I want you to hear before we turn to our last point in our outline. Israel messed it up big time when they rebelled against God, when they asked for a king like the nation surrounding them. But God took their ugly desire and turned it into something beautiful. He took the havoc that was caused by their sin and he made it new. He redeemed it. And if God could do that for Israel, for something as bad as rejecting God as king, then that means there aren't any sins or struggles in your life that are too big to thwart God's purposes for you, that are too big to keep him from doing a new thing, from crafting all of the messiness and havoc that comes from your sin into a beautiful story about his grace and his purposes for you. That's the content. I want to think for a little while now here at the end about the consequence. What's the so what for our lives? I hope we've seen some so what's already, some practical connections. But I want to unpack one big takeaway in particular. Remember, I said at the beginning that the default religion of humanity, the default way that we relate to God in our sin is N-shaped religion. Uh, We are trying to ascend up to God, to please him in some way, and to carry his blessings back down to us. And we see this in lots of different ways. We see this in the pagan religions that are offering different kinds of sacrifices to the gods to appease them, to get some kind of blessing for rain to come or crops to grow or uh, children to be born in a healthy way. But we also see this in caricatures of Christianity, uh, the kinds of approaches to the Christian God that end up treating God like a genie in a bottle, that if we just pray the right kind of prayer with the right amount of effort, with the right amount of faith, that at the end of the day, we can make God do whatever we want. It's N-shaped religion. We also see this on this campus. Uh, I think, 
and I, I'm relatively new here. I've just been here for a year and a half, but I think if we could boil down the mantra of the University of Illinois into three words, it would be something like achieve, achieve, achieve. It's N-shaped religion. It's, it's based on our performance, our achievements. And that, I'm not dunking on the U of I. It's an amazing place to be. I love this school. But that is the exact opposite of what the Bible says. That is the exact opposite of the point of 2 Samuel 7. It's not saying to David and to you and me, achieve, achieve, achieve. It's saying receive. Receive what God has done for you. What does that mean? If I could speak curtly with you for a moment, it means stop relating to God as if he needs you to achieve something for him. Stop trying to manipulate him or get him off of your back by like doing the bare minimum of Christian things. Stop thinking that doing Christian things, as important as that is, actually makes you a Christian. Doing Christian things makes you a Christian just as much as showing up at the gym makes you an athlete. It's important to read your Bible and to go to church and to try to live a holy life. But if you're basing your relationship with God on those aspects, your performance, your achievement then that's N-shaped religion. That's you trying to ascend to God to bring his blessings back down. How do you know when you're basing your relationship with God on achieving rather than receiving? Well, one, one way you can know is that you seek progress or change in your life without the presence of God. What do I mean by that? There, there are things in your life, maybe it's your character, uh, some struggle that you're facing, maybe it's outside circumstances that you recognize need to change. But if you're totally honest with yourself, you would take those changes with or without a growing relationship with God, with or without an experience of his presence. There's a book that uh, the Prague team that's going to come up here later on, and we're going to pray for our uh, team of students that's going to Prague over spring break. Uh, that we're all reading together by this guy named Mark Sayers. And Mark Sayers argues in this book that the story of modernity, the story of the culture that we're all living in in one way or another, is a story about human beings seeking progress without God's presence. God cares about changing you. He cares about progress in your life. And God cares about changing circumstances in your lives too, uh, in his timing rather than your own. But what God cares about most of all is being with you. And this passage helps us to see that. So do you, do you want to be with God? Or if you're honest, are you really more interested in his stuff and the, the blessings that you can get from him while coming back down from ascending the hill to him? Here's another way you can know that you're basing your relationship with God on achieving rather than receiving. Uh, you find it pretty easy to look down on other people. Uh, maybe you look down on other Christians that uh, don't do the right things on the weekends like you do. Uh, maybe you minimize your sin when you're convicted of sin in your life. You say something like, well, at least it's not as bad as fill in the blank. What this shows 
is that you're approaching God on the basis of your own performance. Because N-shaped religion puts us all in a big rat race to the top to bring God's blessings back down. But the religion of the Bible, the U-shaped religion, God's relationship with us based on his grace, it puts us all at the bottom of the U. We're all just awaiting God's grace for him to show up and act in our lives, which makes comparison ridiculous. We all relate to God in this way, in different ways. Uh, We're all trying to pay off that generous family member with our chump change. And we need to see that relating to God in this way is not only an insult to him, it's also slavery for us. Uh, It doesn't actually lead to life or flourishing or the relationship with God that we're longing for. But the good news is that because of God's covenant with David, God has sent a promised king to bring us into God's promised presence. We've been thinking a lot about the temple today and especially about how the temple is this symbol, this physical place of God's presence. But how can we, if we are the sinners that I'm suggesting that we are, that the Bible is suggesting that we are, how could we ever have hope of coming back into God's presence, of coming back into the wonderful place with God that we were destined for, that we lost when Adam and Eve sinned against God in the garden. Well, the temple itself was not just a place of presence. It was also a place of purification. What David wanted to build, that house for God, that temple would be a place where sacrifices would be made to remind God's people again and again and again that they needed a substitute to die in their place if they could ever come into God's presence. There's a um, children's story Bible that I love to read to my kids, Judah and Ellis. Uh, it's, It's a shorter version. It's called The Garden, the Curtain, and the Cross. And it describes how in the temple, in the Old Testament, there was this big curtain. And behind that curtain was the Ark of the Covenant that we've been talking about today that symbolized God's presence. And on this curtain, there were these intricate designs of cherubim, who are these glorious angels that show up many different times in the Bible. But they show up for the first time in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve were cast out of the first temple, the Garden of Eden. They show up with a flaming sword as a symbol that reminded them that because of their sin, they could not go in and experience God's presence. Do you all remember what happened when Jesus died on the cross? That curtain, that was like a big keep out sign, a visible reminder that we're not worthy to come into God's presence. It was, it was torn in two. It was a visible message that God had ripped up the keep out sign. That not on the basis of anything that we've done or anything that we've achieved, God has moved towards us and invited us to come into his presence. Captain John H. Miller is a character from the movie Saving Private Ryan. Maybe some of you all have seen this. Uh, It's portrayed by Tom Hanks. And uh, he's leading this troop of valiant soldiers behind enemy lines to rescue a private named Ryan uh, who has been captured. And the movie 
details their courage and their efforts to rescue Ryan. And many of them ended up giving their lives to rescue this humble soldier. But towards the end of the movie, there's this striking scene between Tom Hanks's character and Saving Private Ryan when, spoiler alert, Tom Hanks's character is dying. But as he's dying, he kind of pulls Ryan close to him and he speaks these haunting words. If you've seen the movie, maybe you remember it. He looks at this man for whom many soldiers have died to rescue him and he says, earn it, earn it. He's basically asking Ryan to pay off this debt that he could never afford. Now there is something good and true and beautiful about that. Ryan was given this great gift and he's, he's called to spend his life well in light of the sacrifices of these men. But Jesus Christ, when he was dying, when he was hanging on a cross in our place, what did he say? He didn't say, earn it. He said, it is finished. The debt is paid. So you can stop trying to earn God's favor. You can stop trying to ascend the hill and earn his blessings, earn his presence. In Jesus, he's come to you. He's torn up the keep out sign and he's inviting you to come in. He's inviting you to live all of your life for his honor and for his glory, but not as slaves trying to earn our way into his presence, but as children who have been adopted and welcomed and loved. Would you please pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that you are the promised king, that this covenant that you made with David long ago ultimately points to you. It points to you as the king who would reign over your people forever. It points to you as the one who would bring peace once and for all between us and our enemies. It points to you as the one who establishes God's temple among us, who's given us your Holy Spirit so that we even now can be in your presence and one day we can know that we'll see you face to face. We thank you that all of this is true. And I ask that you would please help each one of us to turn from the default mode of our hearts of trying to earn your love or acceptance or blessings and to receive the grace that you've purchased for us in your life and death and resurrection. I pray all of these things in your name. Amen.